good to be with you all. Uh, bring you greetings from the Saints, uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's great to be with you all this morning. Uh, I don't come up to Maryland all that often, uh, and so it's uh, always great to see new parts of the DMV. Uh, Catonsville, what a wonderful town this is. Such a beautiful town, beautiful homes, beautiful people. Glad to be with you all today. Um, I want to ask, you know, ha- have you ever taken on uh, a big endeavor? Uh, and you were unsure of whether or not you would be able to finish it. I'm uh, one of three boys, uh, and on Sunday mornings, it was an endeavor for my parents to get us to church. Uh, On Sundays when we were young, things would tempt us and draw our attention away from getting ready for church. We would want to watch NFL game day. We'd want to have an extra Pop-Tart. We would want to do anything but get ready. Uh, I remember, and even if we could uh, begin the process of, of bathing and getting dressed, they were still getting out the door was always a problem. Uh, I remember uh, when I was like six or seven, there was a pair of brown shoes that my mom wanted me to wear, uh, and I didn't, I couldn't stand because they were too tight on my feet. But she thought they looked good, and I would always throw a fit about whether or not I would wear them, and it just became one thing after another. You know, if I could get the shoes on for my parents. Then it became, okay, can we avoid them fighting in the car? Can they, you know, can, you know, always became, you know, my little brother would, he would point his finger at me and say, I'm not touching you. <laughs> and it would bother me. And then my older brother, who's six years older than me, I would, you know, poke him in the head or something like that. I think my mom eventually got a fly swatter just to hit us back <laughs> while my dad was driving. Uh, but that, you know, it's all, it was an endeavor. It was a project to get us to church, and I'm certain that my parents had sometimes thought, maybe it's just not worth it today. You know, maybe, you know, we'll just stay at home. But isn't it, isn't, it's like that a lot with big projects. Um, you know, if you start a degree, if you, start a, uh, you begin with an end in mind. I'm going to complete the degree, but before I get there, I'm going to have to take tests. I'm going to have to go to class. And sometimes the tests are really hard, and you wonder, is the degree worth it? If you're building a deck, you, know, you start out with a, a blueprint of what you're going to do, and you're going to count the cost, and, and then you begin to wonder, gosh, this is a lot of steps. and Is this worth it? Am I going to do that? All along the way, you question whether it's worth pursuing your goal. And when the smaller goals become challenging, whether that's putting on the shoes or whether that's uh, buying the supplies for the deck, you find yourself questioning whether it's worth it. Sometimes, suffering may strike. Other matters compete for your attention. Distractions arise. And at some point, you wonder, again, is the goal worth it? And if you're a Christian here today, the greatest endeavor you've, begun, you've, you've taken on is walking down the narrow path of following Christ. You've been brought out of your sins through the narrow door of faith, and you are now on the road to the celestial city, our heavenly home. But as we walk down the road, we often see the broad path nearby, the broad path which leads to destruction. We see that it's easier to walk on that road. It's easier to be proud than to be humble. It's easier to treat our enemies with contempt than to love them. It's easier to put our, my own wants and my own needs above the needs of others. It's easier to give myself glory than to give God glory. We're on the narrow road, 
And when temptation arises, when suffering strikes, we wonder, is it worth it? Every day we're tempted to walk down and live, walk down the broad path and live like the rest of the world. We are faced with the challenge of believing the lie that there is more to be gained by disobeying God than by obeying him. How do we fight that lie? How do we fight against the temptations of the world? And that's where we find ourselves today in Titus chapter 2. Uh, Titus, chapter, uh, Titus is a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul is writing uh, to his disciple Titus. He had kind of two young disciples, Titus and Timothy. Titus is living in Crete, which is an island off the coast of Greece. Uh, and Crete is uh, it's a very pagan island. Uh, they, they claimed uh, at the time to be the birthplace of most of the Greek gods. Zeus was supposedly buried there. Uh, they lived pagan lives. They were dishonest people. Uh, the men were known for being violent mercenaries. Uh, women often exchanged family life uh, for licentious lifestyles. Uh, and at the beginning of the letter, in chapter 1 and verse 13, Paul even describes these Cretans this way. He says that they are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. He's not holding anything back in, in his description of the Cretans. And now he's writing this letter to Titus, explaining how the church should function within this pagan land. When they're, they're walking down the narrow road, how are they to live? And he starts to give instructions in chapter 2. And he, gives, he tells Titus how the church is supposed to live. And in verse 2, he gives instructions for older men. He gives instructions for older women, for younger men, for slaves, for all kinds of people, the, the diverse group of people that made up the church. How are we to live? Self-controlled, upright lives, steadfast. We're supposed to be, uh, live with integrity and dignity. So how, do you, how is the church in Crete supposed to live a holy, upright, and godly life in the midst of a pagan land? And the question is the same for us today. How are Christians today here in Catonsville, Maryland, supposed to live upright, godly lives in a land that is Babylon? And so that's where we find ourselves in chapter 2, verse 11. And I want us to see uh, three answers to the question, uh, what do we do when we're tempted to wander from the narrow path? Paul gives us three answers to that question, uh, and we'll see those uh, laid out in chapter uh, verses 11 through 14. So let's go, let's go ahead and read. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. The word of the Lord. As I said, uh, this text gives us three answers for Christians who are wondering, 
how do I fight the temptation to leave the narrow path? And the first answer is this. We are to believe in saving grace. That is uh, seen in verses 11 in the first part of verse 14. Believe in saving grace. The second answer to the question is abide in enabling grace. That will be in verse 12 and the second part of verse 14. We are to abide in enabling grace. And the third answer to the question, how do we fight the temptation to fall off the narrow path? The third answer is hope in future grace. That will be verse 13, hope in future grace. So uh, beginning in verse 11, Paul writes that the grace of God has appeared. Look what he says. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. He starts to, you know, consider in the context, verse chap, chapter 2, he gives all the instructions for all the different types of people of how to live a holy life, and then he says, for the reason we're doing this, the reason for this instruction, the foundation for our new life is found in the grace of God appearing, which brought salvation for all people. What is this grace? The grace... Is a great, one great definition is that grace is the unmerited favor of God. It's his gift of salvation to sinners. It's a gift that we don't deserve because we, humans, are vile people. We once walked in rebellion toward God. We deserve wrath. The creator God has ownership over us, and we look at him and say, I have ownership over me. I don't want your law. In fact, I hate your law. The Bible calls us in Romans 5 that we were were his enemies. Ephesians 2 says that we were children of disobedience. And the Bible says that God cannot tolerate even the stench of sin. All those who walk in apathy toward God and all those who choose to elevate their wills and their desires above God's will and his desires all, are all under God's judgment. The face, they face the wrath of Almighty God. And Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah writes, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will lay low the haughtiness of the, of the terrible. In Exodus, when Moses Uh, sees God, he says, the Lord, the Lord God, will by no means clear the guilty. Men and women from all of human history, including today, find themselves in a desperate state of affairs wherein we are all sinners. We are all guilty, and the Lord will not clear that guilt apart apart from his intervening work. Paul says in Romans 3, there is none righteous, no, not one, no one who understands, none who seek God, none who do good, no, not one. So if there's no hope inside of me or inside of any one of us, where are we to look to? Well, that's why Paul rejoices here in verse 11. He says, the grace of God has appeared. The great gift of God has appeared come. We aren't without hope. 
Despite our sinful rebellion, God has made a way of salvation so that all kinds of people can be brought near to God. In in the context of Titus, it's whether you're old or young. Perhaps you're a slave. Perhaps you're free. Perhaps you're a man. Perhaps you're a woman. Whether you're educated or poor. Whether you're uneducated. Whether you're rich. Whatever it is, a way of salvation has appeared. And it has brought salvation with it. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And I want you to notice in the way Paul writes this, he says that there's two appearings. There's a first appearing in verse 11, and then there's another appearing in verse 14, or verse 13, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And so we find ourselves in between these two appearings. And Paul begins by looking back to this first appearing, wherein Jesus Christ gives himself. He sacrificed his own life upon the cross, bearing the wrath of God that we deserved. Verse 14, he gave himself for us to redeem us, to purchase us, to ransom us, so that he might form his sheep, a people of God, that redemption and reconciliation might be secured. You can look down in chapter 3, verse 3, and see uh, Paul's description of the the Cretan Christians uh, before they knew Christ. Chapter 3, verse 3, it says, We were foolish, we're disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. But then the goodness of God appeared in Christ Jesus. Grace appeared in the person of Jesus Christ. And so today, as we walk in the present, and we wonder, wonder why, Paul, why are you giving all these instructions to be self-controlled, to be upright, to live with integrity, to be honest, to be submissive? He's reminding us that we do so because we look back and we see that the grace of God has appeared. We return back to the original question. What do we do when sin, tempt, when sin tempts us? Paul, had, Paul provides a great answer in verse 11. Look to the cross which set you free from the penalty of sin. You were a slave to sin. You, you and I had no hope. But grace appeared and ransomed us from that slavery. The most marvelous thing in all of history happened. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came down on a rescue mission to save sinners. He died in our place. He rose from the dead, conquering death through death, and secured the salvation of his people. We've been purchased with the price of Jesus' life. We've been delivered. We've been set free from sin. Why on earth would we ever go back to live like the rest of the world? How could we? We've been purified from lawlessness. Our souls have been cleansed. The punishment that brought him peace, uh, that brought us destruction, was laid upon him. We deserved wrath, but it was laid upon our elder brother. How could we ever look back and revel in the filth of our sin. All those who are in Christ ought to recognize the consequences of ungodly living. It's, it's separation from the creator. It's eternal punishment. It's exclusion from God's great redemptive plan. But God, in all his kindness, in all his great love, made a way through saving grace for sinners to be reconciled to him, so that we may escape punishment and that we may be brought near to God. 
So Christian, as you, as you wander this weary way, or our weary pilgrim way, wondering how it is, how can I live honest, with an honest life? How can I live like God? How can I be like Christ? Begin by believing in saving grace. The second answer to the question of how we wander this pilgrim way without falling into temptation is, uh, the second answer Paul provides is to abide in enabling grace. Look again at verses 12 and 14. He says, this grace has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Verse 14 to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Paul shows us that there was an initial appearing of grace in verse 11. But that grace doesn't only appear. You know, I mentioned the definition of grace was the unmerited favor of God. But that is not all it is. It's not just God's disposition towards us to uh, to, to care for us and to love us and to rescue us. It is also empowering. It is a teacher. It's a trainer. Uh, it, it guides us along the narrow path. You know, about uh, th- th- this time a couple years ago, uh, I uh, looked in the mirror and I realized that I needed to lose some weight. I needed to get in shape. And it was about, well, I guess it was two and a half years ago, it was about January, and I, I thought, okay, well, I'll try out the new resolution. I will try, I'll try out the New Year's resolution. I've never done it before. And so I started going to uh, uh, a hit gym, a high-intensity interval tri- gym near me, and got connected with one of the coaches. And we'll wake up at 6 a.m. To, cl- uh, to go to the class and drink a lot of water. I remember my first class, I threw up, and I was wondering if I was going to go back the next day. I did not like cardio. I did not like sweat a lot. Uh, but the coach, you know, he, he took me under, he was the, the guy who owned the place he was there, uh, encouraged me to come back the next day. Uh, so I did. I, I, I had a, there was a moment I was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm going to do this again. Uh, but I did. I went back. I'm going to try this. It's only January 2nd. I can't give up yet. Uh, so, <laughs> so I went back uh, and I started working. And I, I started training. And uh, eventually, uh, Eric, the coach, he, he got me on uh, a diet plan, a nutrition plan. I started counting my macronutrients and saying, okay, how much protein am I taking? How much carbohydrates am I taking? It became training. It was saying no to certain things. I love cookies. I love ice cream, but good heavens. I had to cut that out. I had to say, look at that and say, I've got a goal. I'm going to work towards that. And I have to say no to certain things. And I'm going to add in other things. I'm going to add in exercise. I'm going to add in fitness. And there's a, a training element to this. So this is the uh, kind of analogy Paul is using here. All throughout the New Testament, we see images of fitness and running the race. I think it's just, you know, Hebrews 12, one, you know, 1 through 2. Uh, we run the race uh, for the joy, following Christ, who for the joy set for, for him endured the cross. We follow in the race that Christ did. Um, and so this, this training that I went through is similar to the training that all Christians go through. It's a training of hard knocks, but it's a training of grace. All those who are in Christ ought to be learning and training in this grace that enables us to do what Paul is commanding us, uh, commanding us to do. Uh, without this grace, we have no hope to walk in the light as God is in the light. We will live in darkness like the rest of the world. We won't be able to withstand temptation and will quickly fall into the devil's schemes. Without accountability, without living in this training room, if we try and cut ourselves off from that, 
we'll be on our own. Imagine trying to uh, do like what I was trying to do uh, without any help. Well, I, I have no guidance. But praise God that the church exists, that Jesus Christ has come. He's given us an example. He's given us his word wherein we have instructions. We have guidance to live this life. If we live in the school of grace and remain in God's gracious training room, we will be enabled to live this Christian life. You know, earlier today, Brother Charles read uh, John 15. And consider what he says there, what Jesus says there. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Our abiding in Jesus and remaining rooted in him and his word is directly tied to our ability to bear fruit. In our passage, Titus 2, Paul refers to this fruit as living in self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. And so when we abide in Christ, and we abide in the school of grace, we begin to deny that which is not like God, and to embrace that which is like God. We begin to denounce worldly passions and live with passion for the world to come. Look at, uh, look at these three adjectives Paul uses, self-controlled, upright, and godly. When sin tempts me to lash out in anger, grace keeps me living with self-control. When Satan tempts me to lie to preserve my reputation, grace teaches me to reflect the character of God, the only one who does not lie, to be upright. And when I'm tempted to believe that there is more to be obeyed by disobeying God than by obeying him, grace teaches me God's laws are good and that we can find comfort in them and that godliness is good. Compare that to the description of the Cretans in, again, chapter 1, verse 13. Paul says they're liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Compare that. Self-controlled liars, upright, evil beasts, godly, lazy gluttons. It's like totally opposite. It's, Paul, it's as if Paul is looking at the Cretans and saying, see how the Cretans are living and do exactly the opposite. Is it not the way of all those who come to Christ? When we're struck by the glory and grace of God, the cross and the resurrection, we look at our old pattern of life and we turn away from it. In the new life, the Christian begins to renounce his sinful way of living and rips out the hearts, the idols from our hearts. We find ourselves not just in a new relationship with God, but in a new relationship with sin. The old life, we were ignorant, apathetic, hostile to God. But the Bible says that all those who are in Christ are a new creation. Those old things have passed away and new life has come. Now, Paul is not foolish enough to think that these Christians can do this in their own work, of their own work of self-denial and standing in their own strength and gritting their teeth. He doesn't think you can do that. Just as I, you know, I couldn't do all the work of trying to, you know, go go to the gym and I couldn't do that on my own. Paul is pointing us back to something. He points points us back to that first appearing and and tells us, stay in there. Stay in there, Christian. Stay in the training room. Look to grace as a teacher. And that that gracious teacher is Jesus Christ. Look again at verse 14. It says, he is uh, from, he's, pure, he's redeeming us from all lawlessness to purify for himself a people 
for his own possession. We, all those who are in Christ, the people of God, are formed by Christ. As a potter molds the clay, so Christ is forming and shaping us so that he might call us his own. He graciously saves us, and he graciously holds on to us, and he graciously guides us. Think about Psalm 23. When we're in the valley of the shadow of death, we're not alone. The shepherd is guiding us, and as we abide in him, we become zealous to be more like him. In our abiding in Christ, we become a peculiar people that looks different from the world around us. We are people that exemplify the gospel. Now, that's what we're doing here as a church right now. As my pastor, Mark Dever, says, that our gathering here is the gospel made visible. The meeting of the saints, the preaching of the word, the singing of songs together, discipling one another. All of these things that church members do together is one of, those, is one of the most ordinary means that God has for enabling us to live the Christian life. Here in the local church, the word of God is preached, and our lives are examined by fellow Christians. We're opened up, our hearts, our minds are opened up to that which God would teach us through one another, through his word, through the songs that saints have been singing for hundreds of years. It's here where we find fellowship with others who are rooted in Christ, and we're spurred on to continue walking along the narrow road, even in the face of temptation. If we cut ourselves off from this source and choose to abide in our own understanding, we will quickly fall away. Just yesterday, I was, getting, uh, I was getting my hair cut, and I was talking with the hairstylist. And uh, I, this is the second time I've gone to her, and, and she has a hard background. She uh, grew up without a father. Uh, she has eight brothers and sisters. Uh, and now she's a single mom herself. Uh, she doesn't have cl- close family ties. She has a difficult relationship with her family. But she loves her daughter. And she's doing everything she can uh, to give her daughter a better future. And she talked about how she's trying to pour herself out for her daughter and that she looks for ways to fill herself up so that she can, so that she can pour out. So I asked her, you know, how, how, do you, how do you fill yourself up? What do you look to? So she, she doesn't go to church. She's a non-believer. And she said that she looks to positive affirmation. She tells herself things. There's positive affirmations. She also tries to not trust anyone and tries to look to herself and her own strength. She should stop trusting on, on others and was relying purely on her, her own strength. I asked her if she, uh, like I said, I asked her if she went to church. She didn't. Uh, she did when she was a teenager, but had left that behind long ago. Pray, pray for her. She's coming to, uh, Lord willing, she's coming to evening service tonight, so I'll be thinking about that. But uh, I want us to learn from that and not to, be, and not to uh, be tempted to believe that we have the strength to live this Christian life on our own. Uh, the uh, Cretans that Paul is writing to here in, uh, here in Titus, the only thing that's separating them from, the pagan, from their pagan neighbors is that Christ has, rescued them from, Christ has rec- rescued them from sin. God had shown them saving grace, and the last thing he'd want you to do is to say, thanks God for the saving grace, I'm going to figure out how to do this on my own. He keeps pointing us back to the appearing of grace, and we're going to look forward to that here in just a moment in verse 13. But think, you know, what we, uh, in just a minute, we're going to sing Not In Me. If you, look, if you open up uh, I think on, on the page in, uh, in the bulletin, it says, in the second stanza, it says, My debt was paid by Jesus' death. My weary load was borne by him, and he alone can give me rest. 
Brothers and sisters, I don't have the strength to ward off the temptations of the devil's arrows, but Christ does. And when we abide in him and we take up the shield of faith and the whole armor of God, we can withstand the devil's schemes. He will lead us home. I may be hobbling along the way to get there. It may be tough, but make no mistake. Christ, the fount of holiness, shall give me the strength to guide me home. And this brings us to the third answer of how we can fight temptation and keep walking along our pilgrim, pilgrim way. That third answer is hope and future grace. And I have to, uh, I have to admit that John Piper's book, uh, Future Grace, uh, is, is inspired a lot of this part. So if you don't have that book, I commend it to you. It's a great book. Uh, but look at verse 13 once again. Grace has appeared in verse 11. It teaches us in verse 12. In verse 13, it says that we Christians are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This second appearing is what we're looking forward to. We look back at the first appearing, where in which saving grace appears. It trains us, and then we look forward to the day that will come. Paul locates us in between these two appearings, and he says there's a prize at the end. There's an eternal reward which is to come, a reward that is a blessed hope. Now, this hope isn't something like, you know, I I hope it doesn't rain tomorrow on on, on my walk to work. It is not an unsure hope. It is a blessed hope because it is most assuredly happening. Grace appeared once to bring salvation. It assuredly happened in the past, and it will assuredly happen in the future. And in that grace that will appear in the future, I'm going to call it future grace because it's going to bring us in the future face-to-face with Christ Jesus. Think back to uh, what Jesus says when he's before the Sanhedrin in Matthew 26. He says, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There is no question about it. It will happen. Jesus is our great God and Savior. He is glorious. He is good. And he will gloriously and greatly appear. And we will see him either at the end of our lives or at the end of this age. It will happen. And it's something we, we saints can look forward to. And it's not going to be glorious, glorious just because it's a second time. It's be glorious because of who is coming. It is the coming of Christ. Paul says it's the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I need to be careful here, saints. There are some people who would want to take this text and say there are two people that, uh, that Paul is talking about here. There's our God and our Savior. Some people try to do that in the past. Don't, fall in, don't, don't believe them. Listen here, because there is one appearing that happened in the past, and it's directly tied to that second appearing. Grace appeared in Jesus, and grace is going to appear in Jesus Christ again when he's coming down, on a white, uh, on, on, seated in the heavens of throne, uh, the heavenly thrones, and when he's coming down on a white horse. There is one appearing, and it's Jesus, it's Jesus Christ. This is great news, because Jesus Christ is the one who shines in the sky. In his first appearing, he announces his kingdom, and at his second appearing, his kingdom is permanently established, and all his people will be brought near to him to see him face to face. The same man who gloriously shunned before the disciples and the great transfiguration is the one who will appear again. The second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, 
the firstborn among all creation, the very image of the invisible God, the one by whom all things were created, the word of life, the bread of life, the one whose blood was shed that we might be ransomed, this God, who is our Savior, Jesus Christ, will appear. And it will lead us to everlasting joy. Future grace will carry us onward, where we will be given the unmerited gift of eternal gladness and making much of God and enjoying the fullness of God Future grace will enable us to do the very thing that we cannot do now, worship God in perfected bodies free from sin and temptation. Future grace does arrive every day right now. We are experiencing past grace and the fact that we are still here today. Even as the service has started, you and I are still here. And grace is going to carry us on to tomorrow and and to the moments that come ahead. But it's going to carry us onward to a great trajectory, the future goal that lies ahead. And it's going to carry us on, and it's going to fill our hearts with the a joy of knowing, seeing, and savoring Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we might live with him. This assurance of, of seeing Christ face to space, of seeing Christ face to face, is indispensable to living our Christian life today. If the appearing of Christ in the, in the first century did not lead to a conquering of death, then we would be no different from the rest of the world who are slaves to, slaves to sin and the fear of death. At best, non-believers have they can hope for annihilation that death will come and I will be buried in the ground and that will be it. But this worldview gives us no hope to endure affliction or suffering. Our waiting now in this present age, the trials and the suffering that we that come our way right now are actually producing something in us which make Christ appear even more glorious. Our waiting is our training. We, endure, we don't endure simply to live a godly life now. Our endeavor is not simply and ultimately to be righteous. Our endeavor is to see God. And in our waiting, in our training, man, we're training for the, the 10,000 years which, are to, which, which lie ahead of us. Our goal is to abide in him now and forevermore. And so, friend, I urge you to look to this blessed hope to overcome unbelief. I pray that you will rest in this future grace to battle pride and bitterness. I pray that your hope in this second coming grows so large that you begin to each day take time to think about how great heaven will be. I'm certainly tempted to forget. I go to work. I have family obligations. I do things with friends. And it's easy to forget how great this will be. And that's why I need to hear this message every day. Every hour I need thee. Every day I need to be reminded of saving grace that I may reflect on my state before knowing God. I need to abide in enabling grace that my joy in God might increase. And I need to hope in future grace, trusting what lies ahead is way better than what's happening right now. I want to close by uh, considering uh, a, a, a pastor who's influenced me a lot, a name He lived in England a long time ago, Charles Spurgeon. And in his commentary on this text, he gives a wonderful quote that I just love to share 
uh, in fullness with you, and then we'll close in prayer. He says, you know, Paul has talked about these two appearings, and, and Spurgeon comments on this. He says, We are living in the age which lies between the two blazing beacons of the divine appearings, and we are called to hasten from one to the other. The sacramental host of God's elect is marching on from the one appearing to the other with hasty foot. We have everything to hope for in the last appearing, as we have everything to trust in the first appearing. And we have now to wait with patient hope throughout that weary interval which intervenes. By faith, we count these present things to be unsubstantial as a dream, and we look to the things which are not seen and not present as being real and eternal. We pass through this world as men on pilgrimage. We traverse an enemy's country. Going from one manifestation manifestation to another, we are as birds migrating on the wing from one region to another. There is no rest for us, by the way. We are to keep ourselves as loose as we can from this country through which we make our pilgrim way. For we are strangers and foreigners, and here we have no continuing city. We hurry through this vanity fair. Before us lies the celestial city and the coming of the Lord, who is the king thereof. As voyagers cross the Atlantic and so pass from shore to shore, So do we speed over the waves of this ever-changing world to the glory land of the bright appearing of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, you are a gracious God. You made a way for us to be brought near to you through saving grace. You made a way for us to continue growing near to you through enabling grace. And you promise to bring us home as we trust in future grace. You save, you are saving, and you will save. May we not look to our own strength, but always to yours. May we bow our will to your will and give you all the praise for all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.